Before we dive into the message, I want to <clears throat> solicit your prayers about uh, two items. The first is we're going to put a picture up here of uh, Dave Savage. Some of you may know Dave. He's been one of our drummers here at North River for about 20 years. It'll come up at some point. But uh, Dave uh, has also been in the Air Force Reserves, and he let us know a few months ago that he was going to be called up. And so in, in the last uh, month or two, he's been in training. He can't tell us where he's going. can't tell us exactly how long he's going to be gone, but uh, we promised we would pray for Dave uh, today. So we're going to do that. Uh, the other thing is, I'm sure that most of you are aware of the uh, bombings that happened yesterday morning in Israel, and uh, let's pray for Israel. It says in Psalm uh, 122, verse 6, that we were to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we're going to do that right now. Father, we, we lift up Dave and Stacy as he goes away, and we ask that you would have your blessing on Dave, keep him safe, use his skills and his IT expertise well. We thank you for, oh, the 20, 25 years or so that he's been part of our worship team on a semi-regular basis and for the way that uh, you've enfolded him and his skills into all of that. We ask that uh, you would provide for, for Stacy during this time and that you bring Dave back to us in, in a way that is safe and whole. And we thank you for uh, the many skills and the many people who want him, including our military. We also pray for our world and especially for the safety of people in Israel, uh, hundreds and thousands who woke up yesterday morning to bombs and missiles flying. And Lord, we're, we're told in the scriptures to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We know that Jerusalem has been on your heart and the people of Israel have been a, a part of uh, your people from uh, the beginning of the story of the Bible and that uh, Jesus and the apostles and the disciples that we learn from emerged out of that whole context. And so this morning we, we pray for a cessation of the violence and we pray for a restoration of peace. We pray for sanity in a place that often erupts at a moment's notice. Thank you for hearing our prayers and thank you for using us and people all around the world today toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, and we're continuing on in, in our series uh, about being changed by grace, and we're looking at one more encounter where somebody was phenomenally changed by grace, starting in verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. 
Go now and leave your life of sin. You might have been wondering what this is all about. A pile of stones here. And the question is, are they just stones or could they be something more? When Joshua was leading the people of Israel across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land, the Lord miraculously stopped the river's flow just as the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant put their feet in the water and the river stopped flowing enough for all of the people to march on through and pass through the river. But before they were done, Joshua told the people to have one of the chief elders from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the the riverbed and to pick up a large stone. And they were large enough that they had to carry them on their shoulders. And then they were instructed to carry them to the place where they would make camp that night. And they set up a small tower, if you will, of these stones and left it there. It was to be a reminder for years to come of the day when the Lord had provided so miraculously for his people and how he had led them during that time. And so in the morning, children would get up and they would see that pile of stone and the question would come to their minds, are these just stones or is there something more to this? A few years later, a teenager named David took five stones from a stream one day when he faced off against the Philistine giant known as Goliath. Before this one-on-one battle, David picked up five stones that were small enough to one-by-one fit in the sling that he often used when he was chasing off a wolf or a bear as he was tending sheep. And David instead was going to go to battle against this giant that was so large that all of the soldiers in the army, including David's older brothers, were afraid of. David declared that the battle belonged to the Lord, and he ran toward Goliath, and he slung that sling, and the first shot hit the giant right between the eyes, and the battle was over when he fell. While David took five stones that day, he never needed the rest. The rest of David's stones fell into a small pile, reminding David that the Lord is the one who fights for his people. And I wonder if somebody was looking to the spot where David had been standing and saw those five stones or on, the, on the ground or four that were left, if they wondered, are, are they just stones or are they something more? When Elijah faced off in a spiritual battle against 400 prophets of Baal, he took 12 large stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. That day, the prophets of Baal called on their God to light their sacrifices and to send fire from heaven and began to whip themselves and beat themselves and bleed and chant. And David would uh, mock them a little bit and said, why don't you pray a little bit louder? Why don't you talk? Maybe your God fell asleep and he needs to be woken up. And then when it came David's turn, he put a sacrifice on the altar and then he poured gallons of water all over that. In fact, he dug a trench around the altar, and the water filled up the trench as well. And then he never touched the stones. He got down on his knees, and he prayed, and the Lord sent fire from heaven, and it lit the wood on the altar and the animal and licked up all the water, and people knew that the power of God was still working in the land of Israel that day. The stones were left there in that altar, and it Raise the question for years to come when people would come to that site on the top of the mountain, are these just stones or are they something more? Were they witnesses of God's great power? As Jesus entered Jerusalem on this final weekend, 
of his public ministry, riding on a donkey, his disciples called out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were offended by that. And they told David to to silence the disciples. And he responded saying, If they don't call it out, the stones will call out the glory of God. Here in New England, we pass by stone walls every day and we hardly notice because there are so many. But stones actually play a prominent role in the story of the unfolding of God's grace. Sometimes those stones remind us that God leads. Sometimes they remind us that God fights for his people. Sometimes they are witnesses of his power. Today, I'd like to uh, focus on a different pile of stones that bear witness to God's scandalous grace. They're stones that continue to cry out to people who need God's outrageous, often scandalous grace. That's our topic for today, scandalous grace. It's found in one of the most controversial and yet most loved passages in the entire Bible. So this is part four of our fall series that we're calling Changed by Grace. And in this series, I mentioned a few weeks ago, we are looking at both theological explanations of grace and how it works, as well as stories from the Gospels about people whose lives were radically changed by their encounter with the grace of God through Jesus. My hope is that from this combination, that we will all come to understand in a deeper way and in a more personal way how encounters with the grace of God in Jesus can literally change the, the trajectory of our lives. So here, here we go. Let me welcome you here to North River Church this morning. I love seeing all the faces who are here in our worship center and the conversations we've already been having. Welcome, too, to those of you who are watching with us online. Thank you for connecting to our live stream today. I hope that you will not only watch, but that you will tell someone else. Invite them to come with you physically or to watch with you. We have three more Sundays in this series on grace, and I can't think of a more needy topic for many, many people who are part of our society who think that religion is all about doing and all about law and yet haven't fully encountered the life-changing grace of God in Jesus. Now, here's the question for today. Can our lives ever be too scandalous for Jesus? Can you get yourself so deep in the weeds and so deep in the messiness of life that you are too hot to handle, and that your scandal is too great for the grace of God. We're going to talk about scandalous grace. The first thing I want you to see as we look at this passage from John chapter 8 is that there were scandals all around. It's not just one scandal. There are at least four that I can identify. It says, at dawn, he appeared again before the te- at the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand in front of the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And then John adds this commentary. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. The most obvious scandal involves the plight of this unnamed woman who was caught in adultery. So here's Jesus. He's teaching the crowds in the temple courts, and he's interrupted by this scandal. Some Pharisees, a very conservative group of Jewish religious leaders in the city, dragged this woman. She'd been caught in the act of adultery. What does that mean? 
Well, Jesus never questioned whether this was true, and the charge was uncontested. If she was caught in the act, it means that her appearance probably supported the charge. Likely, she's still in her bedclothes, or, or maybe worse, she, she's wrapped in a sheet or whatever she could grab on the way out the door. And then this group of religious leaders, teachers, and Pharisees, all men, make her stand in front of the group, which is a very intimidating situation. And most of them are holding a rock, probably larger than this one, in their hand. They are ready to deliver the verdict and its punishment. Their question at the moment centered on whether Jesus would support their biblically oriented conviction that this woman should be stoned to death right there in the temple courts. So that's the first scandal. But it's not the only one. A second part of the scandal stems from the trap that John tells us that they were setting for Jesus that day. John tells us right away that they were using her and using this situation to trap Jesus. In other words, they didn't really care that much about what she was caught in or what was going on. It may be one of the reasons why the man, because last time I checked, it takes two to commit adultery, why he's not there too. And what did this trap involve? Well, first, it was designed to drive a wedge between our understanding of the moral law of God and God's grace. If Jesus disregarded the commands of Moses and the law, he would be seen by the people of Israel as a teacher who devalued the timeless word of God as established in the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. On the other hand, if Jesus went along with their demand for the death penalty and he picked up a rock too, he would be seen as violating the laws of the Romans who at that time were overseeing Israel and had dominated Israel and who ruled in Jerusalem. In their minds, this was a no-win situation for Jesus and they had him. No matter which way he went, he would be in trouble and he would lose part of his following. But then there's a third dilemma in this scandal how the temple courts were being used. Remember when Jesus cleared the temple courts during that final week of, of his ministry leading up to the day of the cross, and he chased out the buyers and the sellers? Well, that day he was offended that the courts around the temple, the one, especially the ones that were used for reaching non-Jewish people, Gentiles, had been filled with corruption and greed as as the teaching leaders were ripping off people and saying that their sacrifices were better and then overcharging for them. On that day, Jesus declared that this place was to be a house of prayer, not for buying and selling and for taking advantage of people. But Jesus also knew that the temple is where sacrifices were made to cover the sins of the people. Now the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sought to make the temple courts a place of judgment, destruction, deception, and death. And if you thought that's not enough, there's another scandal, a more modern scandal that has to do with this passage. And the question raised by it is, is this story even legitimately part of the Bible? If you brought your own Bible, you may notice down underneath that passage somewhere, it says that some of the oldest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament don't include this passage from John chapter 8, or we'll have it in italics. What's that all about, you wonder? Well, most of our modern translations do that for a reason. 
Back in 1844, Count Constantine Tischendorf, who was a scholar from the University of Leipzig in Germany, spotted an ancient-looking manuscript when he was touring a monastery in Egypt. It was St. Catherine's Monastery, and he found this manuscript in a kindling basket, meaning there were a whole bunch of sheets of this parchment that were about to be used as kindling for fire and to be burned up. And he noticed it, and he asked if he could have it. Well, the moment that he asked if he could have that parchment, they got all on guard, uh, on guard, and he was able to negotiate for about 60 pages or so from that New Testament document, and the rest they held on to, and they put it back on the shelves. It turned out to be the oldest known manuscript of the New Testament ever found, dating back to the third century. In other words, somewhere in the 200s. And this manuscript did not include the account from John chapter 8 specifically from John 7.53 to John 8.11. That sparked a debate on whether this specific story from the life of Jesus really belongs in the New Testament Scriptures. One camp says that since about 98% of all of the ancient manuscripts do include it, that it's authentic and it belongs. The other camp says that if this is actually the oldest manuscript, then older means more authentic, at least in the way that some scholars look at things. And so therefore, we ought to either not read this passage of the Bible or explain that maybe it wasn't really part of the Bible from the beginning. And it's very, very hard to settle that debate. I'm choosing to acknowledge that that puts you and me right in the middle of the scandal. Is this legitimately Scripture or not? And yet it becomes one of the most loved and talked about passages of the entire New Testament. I'm not going to settle the debate. I'm not sure that I can. But I do know that most of the scholars, even those who put it in italics or in parentheses, also recognize that this was likely a passage that John wrote at a different time. And even if it was inserted later, it was still from John. You've got to decide what you believe about this passage, which leaves us right in the middle of the scandal. The second thought about this passage has to do with how Jesus responded to the primary scandal regarding this woman. Notice the movements that we find here. The first thing that he did was he drew attention away from the accused woman. Verse 6 says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Then the back half of the verse says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I find this amazing. Nobody knows what Jesus was writing on the ground. There are many people who have speculated that he was writing down the Ten Commandments. Or some say he was writing down the, the sins of the people who were accusing her because he knew what he was going to ask in a moment about who had threw the first stone. The simple reality is we don't know. But it's obvious from the story that at that moment, all eyes were on Jesus and not on the woman. And in that sense, he was protecting her by drawing their attention away from her and toward himself. Even though their hands were wrapped around rocks, they were focused on Jesus, wondering what he was going to say next, what he was going to do next. Second, he exposed the inconsistencies of the rock throwers. Verse 7 says, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
I just used the word exposed on purpose. Remember, these teachers and Pharisees set up this trap in order to hook Jesus in some way. There was a real issue here in that this woman was found in adultery with a man. Jesus never disputes that there was some kind of sexual sin that was going on that day. However, he instantly knew that the accusers were abusing the scriptures even in the way that they set up this trap. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, there are rules that were given by Moses for what would happen within the camp of Israel where God is king and God is dwelling in the midst of his people if somebody was caught in the midst of adultery. The first thing that it says in Deuteronomy 17 verse 4 is that the matter must be investigated thoroughly. There's no investigation here. They ripped this woman out of her home and dragged her out there to be in the most embarrassing situation possible. Verse 5 then implies that both the man and the woman should have the same penalty. Where's the guy? They're not following the Old Testament scriptures if they don't have both of them. Verse 6 says there must be two or three witnesses who testify before the death penalty could be initiated. Where are the witnesses? What did they see? What are they declaring? How did they know? How was it that she got dragged out there? None of that stuff is unfolded before Jesus, and he knows it instantly. And then verse 7 says that the hands of those witnesses, the ones who testified to what they saw and why this was wrong, were to be the first to throw the stones. So Jesus instantly, by knowing the Scriptures better than they did, exposed and trapped the accusers. It's obvious that something is wrong. It's obvious that she was brought in alone. It's obvious that there were no witnesses being revealed. There's no discussion of a thorough investigation being done here. And it's obvious as well that Jesus knew the Old Testament Scriptures better than those who sought to use the Bible to abuse somebody else. Here's what else Jesus knew. He knew this is the way that theological or religious bullies work. And that's what they were that day. They take part of the Bible and they beat people up who are caught in sin against what the Bible says. But they always conveniently leave out something else. Something that might have lessened the penalty or something that might have shown some kind of mercy or grace. And this is why Jesus comes up with this brilliant, brilliant response let the one who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And in doing so, he's actually accurately copying and voicing the intent of what was there in Deuteronomy 17. And then he let the next rock pile build up. He bent over and continued to draw, to draw in the dirt, and one by one, they released their stones, and they dropped them, and they walked away. And I don't think they were in a pile. They were probably in a disorganized pattern around the circle where they'd been standing, but there's a pile of rocks left there, this one standing as a reminder of scandalous grace. Let's pull a few lessons out of here about scandalous grace. Verses 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Who has condemned you? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. 
then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Why call this scandalous grace? Well, because there was a scandal. In fact, more than one behind this story. We just looked at four scandals that were going on. Because there was grace given for the person who was caught in the midst of the scandal. Because some Christians with wrong assumptions will be scandalized that Jesus actually gives away grace to those who are guilty. Again and again, there were different encounters in the Gospels where the religious leaders were grumbling outside the places where Jesus was meeting with people who they thought he should have nothing to do with because of the condition of their lives. And what they failed to see is how often people who've been on the other side of the bullies would gravitate toward Jesus because Jesus held up what was right at every stage, but along with it, he held up the grace that would pick people up and lift them out of the difficulties they were in. What do we learn from Jesus here? A number of things. Here's the first one. Grace is more important to Jesus than reputation. The bullies thought they could trap Jesus based on how people would see his decision whichever way he went. And they, what they were counting on was, was that Jesus was going to lose, lose half of his crowd no matter which decision he made. But he refused to be swayed by the passion of the crowd. Here's a th- second thing we learned from Jesus. He knew how to expose legalists while protecting their victims. Notice how Jesus took the focus off the woman and drew it toward himself. He knew that theological bullies don't approach problems with the heart of God They wanted to trap him, and they were willing to use this woman and even to destroy her and to take her life from her in order to pull off their trap. What does that tell you about the heart of these Pharisees? All of a sudden, we can understand why Jesus had so many conflicts with them and why his harshest words were always reserved for them because they didn't care about the people. They cared more about their own reputation. A third thing we learn about Jesus is that He didn't come to judge, but to save. In John chapter 3, verse 17, right after the most famous verse in the Bible, we find Jesus saying that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. That desire to save, to rescue, to deliver, ought to be mirrored in the way that we respond, in the way that we live out our faith. And so here he voices it this way, Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I. This is why the rebels and the outcasts and the the riffraff of Israel society were so drawn to Jesus. They weren't the only ones, but they were the ones who clamored to get more time with Jesus. They saw the heart of God in Jesus that was so different from the vanity of the religious leaders. He lived out God's plan. He called others to God's best, and he didn't let them off the hook for for lowering standards But he didn't judge those who were caught in the uh, the passions and patterns of sin. He led them to the way out and to the way forward. Here's the last one. Jesus never leaves us the way we were when he finds us. So he doesn't condone everything that's happened in this woman's life, but he says to her at the end when nobody else is around but The two of them and perhaps some of the disciples who are listening in, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. An older translation 
puts it more bluntly, go and sin no more. He's telling her that this is a wake-up call, that this should be the catalyst for radical change in her life. This should be the thing that prompts her come-to-Jesus moment. Grace paves the way for transformation. If you're hearing this today and you realize that you're caught in some rebellious pattern or sin against God that causes you shame or that you know that God forbids, I want you to know that there is hope for you with Jesus. Jesus doesn't expose your sin in order to bring you to a point of shame. That's not his pattern. He exposes it in your own awareness in order to lead you toward transformation. He wants you to become the person God originally designed you to be. And you can't do that alone. You can only do that by the power of God through the love of Jesus. And he wants your life to be filled with the joy of living as a child of God, being adopted by God into his very own family, the God who, who allows us to bask in his love and to know his favor. Here's the big idea for this morning. No scandal is too great for Jesus, who rescues the accused from abusers and who refuses to leave us unchanged. Leads to another question. Is this your moment for scandalous grace? Perhaps you realize that you've been holding back from Jesus because you have feared being judged or rejected by him. You need to know that if that's the way this is impacting you this morning, whether you're at home or you're here in the room, there is nothing too scandalous about your life for Jesus to handle. There is no one here that he will not rescue. Remember that pile of stones that were dropped? He's not going to judge and reject you. He's the one who causes the stones to be dropped. Or perhaps... Jesus is putting some here under conviction that it's time to drop your stones of judgment. It's amazing how often we carry our stones and we form our preconceived ideas about who's in or who's out based on externals. And I find that the older that I get, the more that I find that there is a small stone that I didn't realize I was carrying and I need to drop it in the pile. And maybe that's true for you too. It's time to loosen your grip on some group or some individual who you would love to instantly see judged by God. This is the kind of grace that leads to transformation for everyone. So I leave you with this question. Are they just stones? Or did the stones that were dropped that day turn into something else the cross as ugly as it was was changed into a sign of transformation what if the stones that were dropped that day were meant to be turned into signs that remind us of grace amazing scandalous grace if you dare, I'd like you to pray a short, very short prayer with me, and then I'm done for this morning. Pray with me out loud if God is moving you this way. Lord Jesus, change my heart, transform my heart 
and life to be like yours. Let me see dropped stones as a reminder of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.